0: To be the people that ask the question that maybe a lot of people are thinking around the table but not saying. You know, that is the stuff that helps you make the right decisions, and it's no good just thinking it and not saying it. The Startup Sensations Podcast
1: first hand accounts of the real stories behind the successes, challenges, and opportunities of starting and growing a startup company from both sides of the pond. With Belent Osman and Shelly Bays. And welcome back to another episode of the Startup Sensations podcast with me, Belent Osman, from uh, pretty close to London here in the UK. And
2: me, Shelley Bays, who is pretty close to San Francisco on the north coast of California.
1: You are indeed, Shelley. Hi, Belent. Hello. And uh, this week's episode is all about fundraising. Now, in season one, we had various guests uh, from the world of venture capital from different parts of the world. Uh, But today is focused on the UK. So we have a very active investor who's based in the UK. And our guest is called Dr. Ruben Wilcock. And Ruben is head of ventures at Blankfinch Ventures, who are based uh, in a place called Cheltenham, which is on the west side of England. And uh, really looking forward to speaking about the venture world here in the UK.
2: Yeah, I'm. I'm looking forward to this as well because, as you mentioned, we've spoken with uh, investors, institutional investors from different countries, the US, for example, um, Ireland, uh, Singapore, and this will be a, a, an interesting opportunity to explore venture investing in the UK because this particular company is focused on the UK in terms of investing and also a bit earlier stage so i'm i'm curious and interested to ask some of the same questions we've asked before and compare and contrast the answers <laughs>
1: And I'm delighted to say that Dr. Ruben Wilcock has now joined us from uh, a very sunny part of the UK, well, normally anyway, in Cheltenham, which is on the west side of the UK. Uh, Ruben, welcome to the show. Thanks, Blunt. Great to be on the show and good to meet you too, Shay. Looking forward to hearing what you have to say here. Well, Ruben, uh, we really appreciate your time today. And uh, could we just kick off with um, telling us about Blackfinch Ventures, because you're, you're head of ventures at Blackfinch. Um, can you just share with our listening audience the Type of companies that you like to invest in, and and what's your specific role in within the firm too?
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And so, so Blackfinch is a group. We're more than more than just ventures. We invest in quite a few different asset classes. Uh, the ventures side, as you, as you said, I, I head up is is a team within the group, and we have we've got kind of two funds is probably the easiest way to describe it. They're both tax advantage funds in the UK, but they both invest in uh, sort of seed and early Series A stage companies. We're a tech journalist investor, so we invest right across the tech ecosystem, although we tend to avoid things like biotech, pharma, kind of life science type firms, because quite long times to market and and we don't have the the sort of the expertise and the team for that area. But everything else is kind of in scope, typically putting in check sizes of anything from kind of 300k up to two and a half million.
1: And I know, Ruben, that you're very active at the moment. In fact, you've been ranked number seven. Uh, most active investor in Europe for Q2 of 2023, as founded by Shifted. So can you tell us a bit about that? Because it does seem as though you're heading, racing up the charts at the moment.
0: Yeah, it was really nice to see that actually to come out because a lot goes into efficiently, effectively investing into a good number of, of opportunities, as, as you know. And we, we do three cohorts a year of investments. And our tax year-end cohort, which is the cohort that was referred to there, that's the one where we really try to you know, push the boat out and get really, really good companies in. I think we did 17 investments uh, in March, yeah. and we've developed actually a lot of technology in-house to allow us just to do that, practically speaking. It's quite a complex thing to do, uh, and we closed all of those investments within a single 24-hour period. Wow. So it's quite an achievement. We're, we're quite proud of it. The portfolio is growing every day, and as you say... We're kind of you know moving up the charts, thankfully, so really pleased to see that news.
1: Well, uh, a lot of our listeners are founders, and many of them, of course, will always be thinking about or actively pursuing uh, capital funding, going through a funding process. And uh, I know from my own experience, it's, it's, it's a fairly challenging part of the job, really, as a founder CEO. So can you just share with our listeners what type of people that you're looking to invest in? Because I know the team is going to be one of the critical factors and clearly the founder is going to be incredibly critical. So what do you look for in a founder? What do you look for in a leadership team?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. I'd say the team at this stage is actually the most important part of of the investment for us because we often invest in companies and the product pivots, you know, there's changes to the business model, but the team is the bit that you want to be the kind of steady constant through the whole thing to take you through to that kind of great... And if you look at the whole spectrum of, of teams you'll have the kind of at one end maybe you'll have the i don't know the academic spin out teams that are building something that's blue sky research they're building a ip portfolio maybe there's no revenue for a few years at all that kind of a thing that's a very different shape to a maybe a software as a service company taking one or two years to uh, develop the product, revenue fairly quickly more commercially minded so it's, it's quite a it's quite a, a different sort of spectrum isn't it of founders but if you were to try and Pull together, I suppose the key uh, attributes. We do have a sort of a what we call the hacker, hipster, and hustler model, which <laughs> is an interesting one. So we're, we're, I'll break it down for you. And it's not that we look for three founders with these individually these these characteristics, but it's more that we're looking for these characteristics across the founding team. So, so if we take those two, so hustler, you really can't start and succeed, I think, in a startup unless You've got a bit of hustle. So that's 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 the person that can close the deals. It's not just closing deals, but if you think about it, to be really successful, you've got to be able to hire the best people as well. You've got to be able to, you know, raise investments, you've got to create, you know, competition for the deal when you exit. So that's the kind of hustler. And then you've got the hacker, who's the, you know, typically like the CTO, and they are, you know, obsessed with the products they want to, you know, they're staying up late, making sure everything is right. You know, they're really kind of into the product and you kind of want that characteristic. And then the, the hipster is the sort of person that understands people. Maybe we'll put it that way. So growth, go to market, you know, marketing, strategy, content. A- and those three roles we look for in startups that we invest in. But sometimes you'll get a sole founder startup and, and they're a really good hustler and they come from a technical background. And that's fine. You know, we don't always get all three. And, and they're really good signs that you, you've got the right components in there in the top team for it to succeed.
1: And how do you actually gauge this? I mean, do, do you send out questionnaires and people fill them in, and then you compute the answers, uh, or, or, or do you just use your eyes and ears and try to judge them?
0: Yeah, we do. I mean, it's mainly eyes and ears. So we have a quite quite a uh, rigorous process. We have initial calls, and then it, if they move through, we see about one to two thousand deals a year. If they move through, then we we have a pitch, which is a long process, you know, three four hour pitch, and during that time, it's quite easy to tell because. You know, we we built companies as well. We sort of understand the traits. We have started doing sort of personality tests as well, which are, just to be clear, so they're not filtering. It's much more about looking at the characteristic of the type of person and the needs of the company and start to put the picture together. So we have actually started doing that. We've done an analysis over our portfolio of of the typical traits of the key kind of CEO, founder as a result as well.
2: You know, it's interesting. Um, the The team is a very, is a theme we hear a lot, which is appropriate. I mean, that's good that we, that's what we hear. Uh, you know, if you're giving advice to founders who have raised angel money and now they're taking the big step, what have you seen as mistakes they make?
0: Yeah, in- well, we've seen quite a few. <laughs> i am involved in every, every one of the big pitches that we do. So I've done hundreds over the last few years. I think the biggest mistake that they make is, you know, they just spend far too long and they're kind of off and on in the pitch. And what you've got to realize is that we've got questions to ask and we're going to ask a question. And what we're really looking for is someone that understands their business really well and they're going to be able to answer that question with really good clarity, good kind of vision, um, good knowledge of the company. And and then and then that's it. You've answered it. Because what often happens is we'll start the pitch and they're all briefed to do a kind of 15-minute Uh, presentation, and we don't. We have a little rule in Black we don't interrupt them. We like to see their narrative arc, that we would like to see the whole way they want to present it. We want to see that start to finish in 15 minutes, because we think that's really important to give them that that sort of time. And a number of times we tell them this, and we tell it before the pitch, and we tell them at the beginning of the pitch, (laughs) and then 45, 50 minutes later, they're still talking through these slides. And it's little things like that, you know, because that shows kind of quite poor awareness um, and then you start to think, well, when they go to see customers, if they go to see a client, they have a prospect and the prospect's busy and they're more interested in, you know, it's just that feeling that they're not really on top of it. So conversely, if they're very succinct and they know their business inside out and they can answer a question well, mm-hmm. uh, what we find is we have really long pitch sessions. It's one of the things that we do differently, a black black bench that can be three, four, five hours sometimes. We like that because... I mean, I used to run an Accelerator and I helped about 250 entrepreneurs on the other side of the table during that. And so I, I could coach anyone to go and do an investor pitch for an hour, hour and a half, I'll answer the right questions. But really what we try and do is we get beyond that. And so we get to the point where that's gone. You know, they've done their pitch. We've asked the usual questions. And then two, three hours in, we're really getting to know them. You know, we're understanding they are, where the skeletons are, where the cracks are. So it's really just being honest and being, you know, coachable, not worry if if, um, if you don't have the answer, that's fine, but just be open about it, be honest about it, uh, and knowing the business.
2: You play good cop, bad cop in the three to four to five hours?
0: We don't intentionally, no. What we do do is we, do, we purposely try and put them under a bit of pressure, just in terms of the questioning. You know, not, not unfairly, but we will go in down a rabbit hole and chase for the answer. Yeah. And, and the reason we do that is, you know, there's going to be plenty of times, plenty of times, if we invest, that we're going to have to work with them and work on difficult problems and understand how they cope with, with the pressure. You know, we want to get the answer and we're going to keep going until we get the answer and we'll see how they react to that as well. And it's a good indication of how coachable they're going to be, how defensive they're going to be, and how difficult they're going to be to to, to work with,
1: and do some people crack under the pressure? <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I don't think they crack. I mean, there's normally a, a, an arc they go through, and they come in and they'll do their pitch, and we'll ask the usual questions in, and then there'll be a point at which they because re- we're a very technical team, we, we're nearly all ex-founders. I've got a PhD, we've got another PhD on the team. You know, we we, we sort of understand technology really well. So there's a point about two hours in when they realise that we're we're unusually technically knowledgeable. And that comes across. And then I think you know, over the, the later hours, it also realised that we we've been on the other side of the table. We've raised money. We've sold companies. We've you know we, we've been founders. We've been operators. And what actually normally happens, but is that it is it is quite a intense process for everyone because it's a long you know it's a long time together. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end, we often get comments like, Well, wow, that was the most you know in depth pitch we've ever had." But it was really interesting. You know, really. Got, got the feeling that you understood the business and that you understood what we're trying to do. And so everyone tends to really quite value the fact that we put a lot of time and effort and energy into into that process, which is nice for us as well. So we kind of build a bit of a relationship, I think, in those long sessions.
1: And that's so important, isn't it, Ruben? Because at, at the end of the day, if you do invest, it's a partnership going forward. You know, you're, you you then become all on the same team and it's important that we all sort of pull together uh, founders, the leadership team, obviously, you as investors, and in fact, the board as well. Um, do you think that a rigorous process helps with that partnership approach later down the track?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I saw a statistic once. I should check it out. I mean, these things change all the time, but I think the average investor found a relationship lasts longer than the average marriage, that's what I hear. <laughs> but when you think about it like that, you know, it's a long relationship. And I sit on the board regularly, companies. And it gets gets very difficult at times. You know, there's times where it's going great and, and it's brilliant and everyone's you know, excited and, and growing. And then there's times when challenges come around the corner. So, you know, it is a journey that you go through. Um, and our job at the end of the day, the mandate of our fund and most venture capital firms is, you know, we have to make sure that the company is supported. We, we make sure that they're making sensible decisions, that they're not making kind of reckless decisions. And that's where the governance comes in to some extent. But ultimately we're trying to create a return for our shareholders uh, whilst trying to add to the world in, in making startups and products that benefit people's lives. That's what we're trying to do.
2: Do you see people coming with a plan or do you see people, as you said earlier, just wanting to talk about the product or service and the technology and the market, but no plan?
0: It's a big, big mix. I mean, the best founders to pitch come along and they understand where they are today and where they're going tomorrow. And you'd be amazed even just the where they are today, how many founders don't really know the numbers. You know, they couldn't really tell you off the top of their head what their current MRR is, the amount of contracts they're signed and not yet um, coming into the PL or the, whatever it might be. Uh, and you've got to be on top of that stuff. And then in terms of the vision and the plan, as you say, it's less about, you know, I often see these pie charts at the end of, I'm going to spend this much on marketing, this much on, you know, it's less about that. It's more about founder having a almost kind of uncanny understanding of the market, of what they're trying to do, why it helps people, a really clear vision of that, and then how they can get there. And it constantly changes and evolves and adapts, and that's just life. Mm-hmm. But a founder that comes in, tells you, you know, how they got to where they are now, has an, a very strong understanding of where they're at, all their numbers, the business, everything like that and then a very clear vision of where they're going and why and how. Uh, you know That's really the story you're looking for
2: mm-hmm.
0: and then what we can do is we can go away, we can we can DD and make sense of the market, whether we think that's, you know, there's enough space in the market, whether we think the product's differentiated enough, it's got a big enough moat, looking to the team. But that's what you're looking for, I think, from the key founding team.
2: How did these big failures happen? Because The investors presumably were sophisticated people. I mean, I know some of the stories, but how do those things happen, in your opinion? I mean, just talk to us a little bit about some of those.
0: I think you've got to be really wary uh, of anything that looks a bit too good to be true. You know, there was a time a few years ago where there were a lot of companies in, in, in the UK and in the US that were kind of growth at all costs. A lot of capital coming in and that driving the growth. And it's like a control system and you've got parameters coming in and it's a loop. But there's lots of lag in the system. So it's very difficult to really unpick whether there's real value in this product mm-hmm. uh, or whether it's it's really, you know, you're buying users at the end of the day, you're you're spending huge amounts of marketing that will drive adoption. Um, and it's this big kind of lagging failure that, that that's growing really fast now, but you just story up a bit. huge problem in in the future and so what we try and do is get to the bottom of that i mean we obviously invest in quite early stage companies but we get to the bottom of that through through data and analysis so you can do things like look at cohort analysis and understand you know when someone uh, subscribes for a product or signs up how engaged they are over time which is a great proxy for churn risk so you know are they still signing in with the product are they using the product is that falling off each month even if they've got a 12-month contract if they're starting not to engage after th- month four or five, or you know, if they have the chance, they might go. We also look at a lot of capital efficiency metrics too. Yeah. So you can do some quite clever stuff looking at or looking at the company like a black box and saying you're injecting this much capital into it. Uh, how efficient is the enterprise value growth um, taking into account all the capital you're putting in? Because if you put loads of capital into company, then it really should grow quite quickly. Mm-hmm. But you're trying to create long sustainable. Um, enterprise funding in company, not just a quick, a quick peek.
2: What's your take on, um, I, I've been reading recently about down rounds are much more common uh, than they used to, be. you know, that used to be the death knell, right? Oh my God, a down round, I'm gone. But things are changing. What's your perspective on that? What are you seeing in the ecosystem?
0: That used to be the, the, the sort of the final nail in the coffin because there was so much capital around that you, you know, company firms would try and justify that actually it was a bit of an upround and it would keep, you know, it would just, it would just this hype cycle would continue. Uh, so at Blackfinch, we have to use a market valuation model where we're taking into account listed entity valuations from the stock market. We're taking into account the waterfall of where we, you know, where we are in the investment in the cap table. Taking into account the growth of the company, we have to use a realistic valuation methodology. And I think what's happening more these days is that I mean, you can't make this stuff up, right? You have to value companies sensibly. You have to justify that. We get audited. You know, it's it's, it's a serious deal, and so it's just reality. And companies, we all know on this call that a company doesn't go from here to here in a straight line. The ups and the downs could be for. It could be by design. It could be for, for a good reason. It could be the market. It could be some bad luck. It could be anything. You could hire one bad salesperson and, and it could end <laughs> up, you know, it could be COVID. It could be, you know, all of these things. And so, you know, down rounds are probably just a fact of life, I think, in this kind of market. You, you don't want to have them because it suggests the company's taking capital but actually gone backwards. But I think you have to accept that some of these companies, particularly early stage, are going through a journey and the product's changing and they're finding their right place in the market. Um, and, you, and you have to just take a view, you know, and be realistic.
1: Can I just ask about um, boards of directors? You know, a board can actually make or break a company. And uh, typically, when you come in, Ruben, as an institutional investor, they've probably gone through, the founders have probably gone through a couple of rounds of angel investing or, or perhaps friends and family, et cetera. And therefore, there will be other board members and that changes the dynamics of the board.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. So at Blackfinch, what we do is we have a network, a roster of non executive directors um, that we call venture partners and they are not Blackfinch employees, they're contracted to Blackfinch. And we've chosen them because they've got experience in many different areas. They've probably been there, done it before, built a company, or they're particularly good at a certain area of, uh, of a certain industry. And so we take a slightly different view to some firms in the sense that we don't put one of the team on as the director, uh, we go on as an observer, and then we pick a director from our roster of venture partners. And quite often the company, more and more we get the company uh, quite involved in that process at the beginning. And sometimes they'll suggest someone and we'll we'll end up using someone they know um, if we think that they'll really add something. And the, the, really the purpose for us of that is, yes, it's a board seat. It's a vote around the table. That's important for us for governance. But it actually looks a bit more like an independent, non-executive director. Uh, and the idea is that they'll add value to the company. So we kind of use it as a selling point. More than um, you know, having a, a sort of a vote and a stick on the board, if you like. Once they've got to the point where they're, you know, they've done a seed investment before with a, a VC, or they're doing a Series A. By that by that point, they'll understand the dynamic of the board, and investors expect a seat, and they will have got used to the rigors and the governance and the board packs and everything else. I think it's a bit of a shock sometimes for, for for the earlier stage founders where it's the first institutional investor to come on. They'll see quite a few changes because they might not have even had board meetings formally me before. They'll they'll be expected to, you know, produce their obviously their management accounts each month and some kind of KPIs that we'll be tracking and we'll sit on it. And for them, it will be a new level of formality. Yeah. Um. So and and you know we try to be super helpful and we try to pick uh, neds that they're adding value so it's a positive experience. But the reality is that. Board meeting someone once said to me a really kind of sage chair board chair that's been in many boards so many companies he said the thing is that boards are the place where you have the crunchy conversations
2: <laughs> I like that
0: <laughs> it's nice when you can do that and yeah. be really open and trun- and you can do it in a pro- very professional um, constructive way but I think one thing that we really try to be at Blackfinch is we try to be the people that Ask the question that's that maybe a lot of people are thinking around the table, but not saying because you have to flush that stuff out. You know that is the stuff that helps you make the right decisions to go in the right direction, and it's no good just thinking it and not saying it. Um, so some founders react to that really well. You have a really good uh, working relationship with loads of our founders, uh, we we obviously talk to them a lot in between the boards as well. Uh, for some of them, it's you know if they've been used to running the company a bit more like a proprietor, then it's a, it's a bit of a shock. It takes a, takes a while for them to get used to. But I do think they see the value of it over time.
2: I've worked for a long time with startups and run you know, investor startup uh, matchups, mostly in the angel kind of realm. But um, it used to be that the quintessential startup founder was this young, passionate visionary. And yet in reality somebody who's been through it once or twice and is, I don't know, 45 is sort of statistically the more successful founder. And so tell us uh, tell us your experience and your thoughts on that.
0: Yeah, we, we, we've got data points, I guess, on that across our portfolio. Uh, I think the average age of founder is around about very early 40s. I can't honestly say that I've seen a strong correlation between age. And I don't know whether that comes somewhat down to the picks, because you know that's where you're trying to get an edge at the end of the day. But we have, you know, the the very young dynamic founders. I'm thinking of the founder of Tended, one of our companies, who's, you know, just incredible uh individual, massively passionate and driven for the product that he has, which is is a device that helps save people's lives on the- on the railways and, and his story of why he's made it and, you know, how why people join the company and why they care about what they do. You know, it's just, it's, it's just so like in his blood mm-hmm. and, you know, we love that company. It's doing really great things. It's, it's taking off massively now. So you get but but then equally, it's very, it's very seductive when you have a founder in the, in the room where they've died three times before and, understands, you know, they, they've been through that thing. like yeah. And they know when things get tough, you know, what you need to do and everything else. And that, that gives a huge advantage for sure. But sometimes those very kind of young, less experienced founders just, because they don't know what they don't know, I think they happen across happen upon something that just is a really good fit in a market at a certain point in time. And if you've got the right one, then they can really make it happen.
1: Ruben, can I ask about female founders as well, and uh, and, and the whole issue of diversity, you know, b- b- being inclusive with different ethnic backgrounds, etc. Is there some element of um, maturity around those sort of issues going forward?
0: Yeah, I think so. It's a really interesting topic, is it? Because it's so sort of chicken and egg in a way, and you know, we know the statistics. I mean, if you take, so I, I think it's always really bad to just focus sort on of gender, actually, that, because I think there's so many. You know minority groups in different industries, and it's really important to recognise. As you have, you know, ethnicity is another is, is another one. Um, but you can look at the statistics, and so if you if you look across all startups, then I can't remember the exact number. It's around sort of twenty percent, I think twenty percent have female founders or co-founders, uh, tech startups that is. And if if you go much more broadly, it's actually much higher. And uh, and so we, I think, we have a similar, if not slightly more, number in our portfolio. And so. I think it's really important that we don't go down the route of, you know, trying to dial in the numbers so much that entrepreneurs that happen to be female or they happen to be from uh, black or ethnic minorities think that they are only getting investment because they are from because that's absolutely rubbish. Yeah, we've got female founders in the portfolio. We've got founders from different ethnic minorities, and they're superb founders. You know, it doesn't make a difference what background they come from or what gender they are and I think it's really important you don't take that away.
2: How about Blackfinch itself? Do you have a pretty diverse group? I would imagine you do. We
0: do actually yeah the group as a whole um, is is really diverse certainly in terms of gender. Um, some of our the female members of our staff have won um, various sort of awards which has been really nice nice to see. It just so happens my team is very ethically diverse and Uh, We've also got a mixed agenda too. So I think we do well that way. But, I mean, people always forget things like, you know, age as well. You know, it's really diversity of thought that we talk about. Yeah. Where, guess what, Nick on my team, who's been in more jobs and had more experience than some of the younger members, he he thinks about different things than some of the younger members who just come out of university. So we try and, you know, think a bit more around diversity of thought and experience and, and background rather than just pigeonholing it as female entrepreneurs or just, just one of these kind of big headline
1: um, items. Ruben, can I take you back to perhaps the beginning of your career? Let's go let's go back in back in time. I know you had a big association with Southampton University and what was a young Ruben doing thinking about dreaming about let's say as you finish your university years? Yeah. So,
0: I mean, as a boy, I was always very entrepreneurial. I went to university to do electronics. I had a real passion for electronics, actually, and building things. That was my whole, it's remained my whole kind of thing. I decided to do, to do a PhD, which I did in my, in microchip design. So it was electronics, but quite specifically chip design. Uh, and that, that went quite well, but it didn't really satisfy my real world entrepreneurial. <laughs> <laughs> so I found a kind of happy medium where I was involved in research for Quite a lot of years. If you, if you go to Google Scholar and you type my name in quotes, you'll probably find eighty or ninety, you know, <laughs> papers that I've authored, or co-authored about many different areas. And I was involved in yeah, a very broad range of technologies, everything from hydrogen fuel cells to genetic algorithms. We put tracking devices on the back of honeybees to try and understand what they were doing. We raced boats powered by the sun, and I found myself sat on the intellectual property panel at the University of Southampton for five or six years. Where you know all of the patents, all of the inventions, the spin-outs, the startups, the licensing—kind of for the engineering department—went through this panel, and at the same time, I started to to, to do my own startups. So I've done four tech startups now, um, with uh, different degrees of success. One of them exited very successfully at the end of 2014, which was which was when I decided to start the accelerator Future World, which still exists today. We, we sort of we literally grew from zero. We, we built a you know a physical place. It was affiliated with the University of Southampton. We helped about 250 entrepreneurs across about 50 60 companies. We got very good at raising some angel capital, and then getting them over to Y Combinator, which you see over there in, in the US and places like Skydeck, you know, really good accelerators in the US. And some of them went to do really well. Many of them failed. It was super early stage, but some of them did really well. We had a small angel network and. And yeah, I, re- I kind of really enjoyed that phase, but I think, and it wasn't designed as such because I sort of finished my startups and I decided on to break and I wanted to help other people do the same thing. And then I got to the point of doing that for four years where I thought it'd be quite, quite fun to have more capital to support and help those companies with. And that's when I looked around for a venture capital firm that I felt was interesting enough and entrepreneurial enough to be able to make a difference and have the right kind of values that I sort of had. And, and that was where Blackfinch came in. And, and Blackfinch is great. We're about 160, 150 people. Uh, and, and as I say, a, a number of different investment teams. But the good thing about Blackfinch is we've got this really super entrepreneurial uh, founder, Rich Kirk. And so it's the kind of place where if you have a good idea, then you're never kind of shot down for a good idea. In fact, quite the opposite. And you know, we've done many a project where, you know, if it feels a bit like a startup. Really, we've we've tried to launch a product, or you know, tried something new, and generally, you know, you get the backing to do that. So it's been a really good place to join. So I joined Blackfinch after running this accelerator for four years or so, and then helped set up the, the ventures team and the product and. The, Processes and everything else in Blackfinch since then.
1: That's a great story, Ruben, and and it's nice to hear your, your progression from uh, Exited founder through to helping others, and and now and now doing it at scale, which is what you're doing right now. Um, so just the final question, really, before we wrap up, and uh, just take a quick peek of the future. I mean, we're all talking about artificial intelligence now, and that's going to have a big impact. What's your perspective of the future of entrepreneurship over the next, say, three to five years as technology really races ahead?
0: Well, it's certainly very exciting. I think there's some interesting kind of parts to that answer. I think that as a career choice, if we can call it a career, I think people (laughs) may start to think twice about it. I think it may be because it's a difficult time to start a company. There is a bit less capital, you know. The companies you sell to are, their budgets are tightening. Um, you know, the, the, the sort of sales pipeline, the time to close a deal is increasing. It's a hard time to start. So you've got to really want to do it now. I think a few years ago, there was a lot of capital around, you know, the multiples valuation were really high. And, you know, it was a really interesting time. Lots of people gave it a go. With we, You know, some companies were probably that great. Um, of course, we never invested in those, so that's good. <laughs> no, of course not. <laughs> but I think, it's becoming, I think it's becoming really quite high. But if we park that for a second, so I think you've got to really want to do it. You've got to realize what you're up against. Yes. I think in terms of technologies, it's a really unusual time because if you look at things like open AI and how quickly that's moved on in the last 12 months, maybe even to six months, and we, 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 you know, we, we push that right across the new portfolio, and you just see how that's changing the dynamic of the accessibility of very complex technology and, and democratizing access to that. It makes you realize just what you can do with a few very smart people with a really good idea. So you can, you know, jump on um, OpenAI right now, and you could, without any understanding at all, you could develop a, you know, a deep neural net model to do some image processing or some. Um, AI predictions of, of I don't know I mean I, I wrote something the other day believe it or not to take my webcam and detect when a pigeon was walking along the fence of my house at home because my idea was if I, if I made a loud noise it might go off instead of making a mess on the top of my face you can do that that would have been a phd project 10 years ago now I can write that in open AI and it will do most of the work for me in two hours that's
1: amazing and,
0: and that's really what's changing in the world and i think that will open up a lot of opportunity for people with really smart ideas mm. who who are really you know intelligent and and smart people around them so i think that's what we'll see we'll see some really really clever companies coming together but i do think that's you know the people that, that that choose the entrepreneurial route will We'll need to really want to do it and realize that it's quite a tough time to go.
2: Did you get the pigeon?
0: (laughs) I did. You know, it wasn't so close that you could determine a pigeon from another type of bird, but it it was detecting pigeons, yes.
1: (laughs) Amazing. <laughs> so uh, you're, I'm sure you're always looking for good deal flows. So if people have got this wonderful idea and they're looking for a little bit of capital, um, how best to contact you, Ruben, or perhaps some of your colleagues at uh, Blackfinch? What was the best way?
0: Yeah, so you, you can go along to the, the ventures website. So, if you search for Blackfinch Ventures. We've got a form on there you can fill in. That's one way. Uh, or you could search for me on LinkedIn. You could drop me a message. I, mean, I get a lot of those coming through. And we're looking for super smart teams, big grown markets, uh, people that understand, as I said, where they come from, where they are today, and where they're going. Uh, and uh, we'll always we we'll always take a look if you if you get those criteria.
1: Well, here here on the call we've got Shelley, who's our hipster, probably. Uh, I'm probably the hustler. So, Ruben, you must be the hacker. Let's do with
0: that with the pigeon story. We'll go with that.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, that's probably the best way. Well, Ruben, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, thank you ever so much for your time and for your wisdom and for your insight. And uh, no doubt, you've given away some very very interesting pointers for for founders to to make sure they pitch to you properly and 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 increase their chances of uh, of success. So uh, we really appreciate your time. Thank you. Yes,
2: thank you.
0: It's been a pleasure.
1: Well, Shelley, it was uh, really good to speak with Ruben there and I've known Ruben for some years, but the actual conversation was far more informative and insightful than maybe I was uh, initially thinking or hoping for. It was very interesting from my standpoint to
2: learn how somebody who is such a professional in this business of assessing startups, how they go about it. It's very methodical. I mean, we kind of know that.
1: Well, Ruben mentioned uh, quite a wide variety of things, but the one that stuck out for me was uh, his emphasis about team, especially when assessing Uh, the viability of making an investment in a startup company, especially in the very early stages of any business. And I was particularly struck by those three H words that he used to describe three different personality types that he looks for, hacker, hipster, and hustler. And it's very interesting that internally, they've got this uh, uh, benchmark, if you like, to try and see uh, if the founder or the founding team possesses all these three personalities, because having all three of them in perhaps different people is really important. And of course, that leads to the other point that he made, which is really about diversity, not just diversity in the way we are now beginning to understand diversity in the workplace and in society in general, but actually diversity of thought. Because if you have different people thinking Uh, and feeling things and making decisions with that level of diversity, then in general, the outcomes are better.
2: I think that his concept of, you know, looking at these different personality types and looking at diversity of thought also applies to the board, the advisory group, the group that stands next to the company management team and helps and assists. And, you know, this kind of group can be extraordinarily important, to a company we've had other guests reference that but i think the idea that that is where i think he said that is where you can have really independent conversations he used the word crunchy <laughs> conversations which stuck with me you know and what he meant was you can have the very direct conversations that are important to the growth of a company the honest feedback the the difficult conversations and the other thing that i actually I had to chuckle as I was listening to him talk, is these in-person sessions, or maybe they're you know on screen, but I think they're in person, to assess the company and the company's team. And so you have the CEO and maybe you know one or two others there, and the VC plays good cop, bad cop. What I found interesting is him saying, okay, we say to them, you have whatever it is, 10 or 15 minutes to present your company, and then we'll we won't ask questions during that period of time. And he said, if they're still talking after 45 minutes, that (laughs) tells us something about how they are aware of others uh, versus just wanting to be in love with their own particular situation. But these sessions, which he said actually sometimes last four or five hours are very intense and they're opportunities to really get beyond the surface in terms of understanding the company, the team, how these people react, how they answer questions. And just one other last thing was his comment on down rounds and how down rounds are not the killers that they were at one time so that was also an interesting perspective because he's very knowledgeable about the current trends in this marketplace
1: thanks for listening to startup
0: sensations don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform so you
1: never miss an episode get in touch with us email hello at startupsensations.com. and don't forget to follow the startup sensations podcast on our linkedin page and watch episode highlights on our youtube channel We
2: love hearing your feedback and questions. So send us a message
1: or a voice note
2: to the WhatsApp number you'll find in the description. The Startup Sensations Podcast.